On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, we'll talk to comic book artist Neil Vokes about his decades in comics on projects ranging from Robotech to Superman to the horrific flesh and blood. And I'll tell you about some of the notable virtual reality video games coming soon to a headset near you. Now straight from the garlic-filled armory of Abraham Van Helsing, this is 1.21 Gigawatts! There, and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number 6 for June 2016. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. I'm referring to movies, TV, comics, games, theme parks, and more. And if all that sounds good to you, you are in the right place. And I intend to do that not only by bringing you interviews with the creators of said nerdly awesomeness, but also with a series of rotating segments and features that take a deep dive into a specific geeky topic. One of the emerging trends at this year's E3, for the uninitiated, that's the Electronic Entertainment Expo, was the growing presence of virtual reality offerings for consumer gaming. The technology is jumping forward by leaps and bounds, and even if it's not quite ready for prime time, nearly every major game designer is knocking on the door, and they want to make it happen. Now, I'll preface this by saying that I personally did not attend E3, but thanks to the miracle of the internet, I was able to monitor all the fun virtually. Get it? I'm sorry. I know, that's strike one. Let's talk about some games. Unsurprisingly, one of the biggest ways to get a lot of press is to marry these emerging technologies with very big franchises, and that's just what happened at E3. The announcement trailer for Batman Arkham VR literally begins with the million-dollar question for gamers, how do you feel when you put on that mask? In the demo, it's Mark Hamill as the Joker asking Batman about his thoughts when he suits up. But of course, that bit of dialogue also ponders whether gamers are willing to put down their controllers and strap on a headset for immersive gaming. And what game will be the one to get them there? Well, based on reports, it might not be Batman Arkham VR, the demo of which reportedly has the player as Batman investigating evidence at a crime scene in a manner which doesn't really take advantage of the VR format. So, perhaps the answer to the Joker's question about how you feel when you put on the mask is best responded to with, uh, a little claustrophobic and a bit bored, I guess? You can make up your own mind in October when the game is released exclusively on PlayStation VR. Electronic Arts announced a VR space combat mission for their existing Star Wars Battlefront game, which will be exclusive to the PS4. The footage that was shared at E3 was very brief, but it looked gorgeous, as does every other frame of content from Battlefront. And of course, when trying to get a crowd psyched up about your game, it never hurts to have a live orchestra playing Star Wars themes to accompany the sound effects of Star Wars space combat and chatter between X-Wing pilots. I'm sure it's no mistake that the new VR level puts players in the cockpit of an X-Wing and sends you roaring into squadrons of attacking TIE fighters, since one of the loudest criticisms of Battlefront was that there were no opportunities for space combat. Representatives from DICE, the developer, said before the game was released that this was a conscious choice because they wanted to keep a game called Battlefront involved with the infantry experience. To which disappointed gamers responded, yeah, 
but I want space combat. In other words, perhaps this new VR level is an attempt to save face and give the people what they want, even if it's many months after the game's initial release. Another aspect designed to grow goodwill and enthusiasm between EA and the fans is that the new content will be free to anyone who already owns the game and, of course, has a VR headset with controls with which to play it. The downloadable content is slated to be released around the holidays, which means that you can watch Starfighter Combat on the big screen in Rogue One and then experience first-person Starfighter Combat on the very small screen in your VR headset immediately thereafter. We live in magical times. For my money, one of the most straightforward and very fun-looking VR experiences to come out of E3 was Ubisoft's Star Trek Bridge Crew, a four-player co-op game which promises exactly what the name implies. You and three of your VR headset-wearing buddies take on the roles of Captain, Helm, Tactical, or Engineer in a Federation Starship Bridge environment. Orders are barked, engines are powered, and shields are raised as you go on rescue missions, battle Klingons, and chat about which season of Next Generation was the best. There are multiple live demos online for this game, ranging from journalists waving their arms around like crazy people trying to steer ships and power up phasers, to an excellent demo starring Star Trek TV and film alumni LeVar Burton, Jerry Ryan, and Carl Urban, who slip into the language and urgency of a Star Trek mission like they never stepped off the set. LeVar Burton sternly improvising the sentence, Ensign, as soon as you can get us the hell out of here, I'd be most grateful, while sitting in an easy chair with a headset strapped on is delightful. It is not to be missed. And the thing that links all of these demos is that the players look like they're having a lot of fun. They're smiling, laughing, looking at each other's avatars in the shared virtual environment and having a blast as their hearts race. You know, I was never much of a role-playing game fan as a young nerd in training. Acting out the roles of warriors, elves, wizards, etc., whatever, always seemed a bit silly to me when having to consult 20-sided dice and game screens as often as seemed necessary. I've got no problem taking on a role and acting goofy, but the game momentum always seemed so herky-jerky to me. Star Trek Bridge Crew seems like it rewards players that are willing to dive into their selected sci-fi roles while giving them a familiar environment to play in. Next stop, the holodeck. You too can go boldly with Star Trek Bridge Crew this fall with the Oculus Rift, HTC Vive, and PlayStation VR. Our last addition to this conversation comes from the mad scientists at Magic Leap who have partnered with Industrial Light and Magic's ILM X-Lab to create all kinds of virtual and augmented reality goodies. Naturally, they're focusing on Star Wars content so far because who doesn't want to see holographic versions of R2-D2 and C-3PO in their living room? And that's exactly what they showed off last week! Through augmented reality, the droids will walk around your room, R2 will plug into an actual table and call up a holographic map, and then little ships fly around and jump to light speed. It's good stuff, people! Now, it remains to be seen what the end result of all of this will be. Is this ever going to get past the that's cool phase and become an actual game, or some crazy addictive app that'll turn your dining room into the Moss Eisley Cantina, or add pictures of blue milk to your kitchen counter? We'll see. Always in motion is the future. What are you excited about in regards to virtual reality or augmented reality? On a scale of Lawnmower Man to Ready Player One, how charged up are you about playing in these new realities? Is it a technology with lasting promise or is it a gimmicky flash in the pan? Is it going to change everything or will it ultimately go the way of the Betamax, Laserdisc, or Crystal Pepsi? 
Let me know what you think at the 1.21 Gigawatt social media channels. Make it so. Back in November, at the Superheroes for Hospice fundraiser comic book sale in Livingston, New Jersey, I had the chance to sit down and speak with comic book artist Neil Vokes. Mr. Vokes has worked for virtually every publisher in comics, including a few that aren't around any longer. You may know him from Parliament of Justice from Image, Superman Adventures from DC, Flesh and Blood from Monsterverse, or about a gajillion projects in between. With a career spanning decades in the comic book industry, uh, artist Neil Vokes is a talent that is happy to draw famous characters like Superman and Tarzan, and he has, but I'm suspecting that deep down his heart belongs to horror, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Neil, welcome to 1.21 Geekwatts. Is that correct when I say something like that? Yeah, you pretty much summed it up. So, so why even? <laughs> Let's ask wrap it up. And thanks. It's all right there. <laughs> <laughs> when, when, so if horror is what you're attracted to, um, and and where it's frequently where you can be found, when when did that climb into your psyche? Was it as a kid where you saw something and you're like, oh, this is it, this yeah. is it? Well, that that's actually it. Yeah, I'm, I I can trace back my interest in in, in that subject since I was a little kid. Yeah. Watching, uh, I mean, in my age, I'm. I'm 61 now, so I was watching on a little black and white TV the, the old Universal films mm -hmm. when they started to show up. And other than uh, my favorite uh, TV show, my TV show favorites were Westerns, because that's all they showed. Yeah. So I loved Westerns and horror. And uh, as I grew older, I'd go to the theater and we'd see stuff. My dad would take us to the drive-in back in the days when we had drive-ins. <laughs> And I, I think the thing that kind of definitely pushed me over the edge into, into my interest in horror, especially uh, the, the film company Hammer Films, the yes. British company, yep. was in 1964. I was about 10 years old, and I've, I've talked to other people, they say around 9, 10 years old is where a lot of stuff seems to <laughs> kind of sink in, you know? Yeah. And I think that kind of set me on my path because we went to a drive-in to see uh, a four-feature uh, thing. And it was Horror of Dracula, Curse of Frankenstein, uh, Godzilla versus the Thing, which of course was Mothra, and um, Goliath and the Vampires. So from that day forward to this, those have been like my, my big favorites. It, I had never seen a Hammer film before. That, yeah. that was a, it was a re-release because they had originally come out in the late 50s. And so this was 64, so this was a re-release in America. And I saw, the minute I, I heard that music, and it was in color, and there was, you know, Baron Frankenstein, there was Dracula, blood dripping from his fangs, red eyes, and, and it was, it, there was no going back at that point. When we, when, when we were driving away, I remember, and we saw all four films. And I'm in, like, my jammies, we're in a station wagon, and I, we're driving away, and I'm, like, pressed against the window, going, no, I want to see it again, I want to see it again. Because you could hear, they were starting one, you could hear, dun da da dun 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 and, and I'm like, no, 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 I want to stay, you know? So I think that kind of, as of 10 years old, definitely, that was going to be the, you know. You're imprinted for life, yeah. yeah. And, point. of course, in the meantime, also, I was naturally a comic book fan growing up, because I, you know, went to the local drugstore and bought my comics. My famous Monsters of Film Land, things like that. So, yeah, it, it was definitely at an early age. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's interesting because I think, of course, with some kids, that's going to be like, I'm scarred for life. But the right, you get the right kid in the right mindset that are like, well, I think you own me. My father thought I was scarred for life. <laughs> but, uh, you know, since having gotten into the business, too, I, it's kind of like I'm getting to turn the knife a little bit on it. You know, because he used to actually literally throw my, my comics away. And, and in fact, one time... Oh, 
I'll never let him forget this. He actually took a bunch and burned them because he was just making his point, you know, how warped my brain was going to be. And he probably wasn't that far off, you know, but I think it warped in a good way. And then he sat you down for another chapter of Seduction of the Innocent. Is that what happened? No, it didn't go that far. <laughs> in some of the research that I've done or reading a little bit about you, that you've actually become the, the professor or the go-to guy for recommendations, actually, with some people. Like, we're going to do work on a horror movie. Here's the DVD that you need to watch. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm definitely a huge film geek. I mean, it's not just... It, it, it's not just horror, I'd say. Like I say, horror and westerns are probably, if I had to put them in order, sure. they would be up there. But I just love all film. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm one of those encyclopedic kind of guys, you know, where you know, somebody will talk about a, a particular film and I'll say, oh, blah, 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 and that starred blah, 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 and that was made in, you know, it'll just, it, totally useless trivia to most people <laughs> yeah. is stuff that's rambling about in my head all the time. And, you know, like, I'll turn on say TCM or something and mm. it's in the middle of something and I'll, I'll my wife will say what is it oh that's uh, you know and it's it's not it's not stuff that you, you need to know in life it's just something <laughs> I you know we all have our the, the stuff we retain most of all and for some reason that's just for me it was film you know I love comedies westerns dramas musicals I love all films but my favorite stuff was always the horror and the, yeah. uh, the West, which is why I did Wicked West, because horror and right. Western together. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's sort of, as you were talking about that, clearly the perfect marriage then manifested itself with that title. Yeah. Um, let's talk about um, a little bit about the, the beginning of your career. I know that you started in the mid-80s, is that right, with yes. Comico? With Comico. 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 Everybody says, I said Comico when I first That's met it. the guy. I was going to say, how do you, how do you have a comic book company? Comic, right. No, so it must be comic. No, it's Comico. Mm -hmm. They always made it, they were very snotty about that. You know, it's, <laughs> it's Comico, not Comico. Right. But uh, yeah, I was, um, <clears throat> I started doing some uh, samples in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And um, around that time, I had been laid off my job. I was working as a supervisor in a furniture warehouse in uh, actually Woodbridge up here. And uh, Huffman Coos. <laughs> and um, they laid me off because I was near the bottom of the totem pole, I guess. So they, so they dumped me. And uh, they haven't called back, so I'm, I'm not sure. I think they actually fired me, but they said that I was laid off. But uh, we'll get back to that some other time. Um, uh, I had suddenly time on my hands, so I started collecting unemployment. My wife had just started as a teacher in the early 80s, and we didn't have any kids yet, so it was, we could afford me not working. And so she said, well, why don't you try getting in the business? And uh, after, you know, she convinced me that she wasn't crazy, that I should try it, what have I got to lose? She literally said, what have you got to lose? Because we can, you know, she could pay the bills. I can do samples, I can send out stuff. So I did, I spent it probably about a year or so. I got the uh, Bern Hogarth books to learn about dynamic storytelling and things, figure drawing and things like that. Because I had only ever drawn half-assed. I was, you know, I didn't draw like I had a purpose or a goal. I, I joked that I would be in the business someday, but I never I honestly believed that. But here was a chance where I could actually try to get in the business because she gave me that chance. She literally pushed me into that chance, actually. <laughs> you know, and uh, so I did samples. I sent them out. I got a lot of rejections because my stuff wasn't really advanced yet. I, this, the stuff that I think I, I was already naturally gifted with was the storytelling mm -hmm. because that was my love of films I think probably helped me with that but the actual figure drawing and things like that I was I had a long way to go but Kamiko had just started up the, the uh, guys that started the company 
had just come out of uh, college, and I think it was the College of Visual Arts or something in Philadelphia. And they were all uh, a bit younger than me. And they uh, were looking just for new talent. So they weren't as particular as, say, a, uh, you know, DC or Marvel, or even First Comics and Capital Comics, all those, sure. those small companies that started up in the 80s. So I, uh, I did some samples, sent it to them too. I had met a fellow named Rich Rankin, who was the manager of a Heroes World comic shop. And we decided to do samples together. So we did a couple things together and sent them out. And one of the things we sent was to Kamiko, and they responded. They said, hey, come on, come over to Norristown, Pennsylvania, and we'll, we'll talk. We got to know the guys. We became very friendly with them. They published our little eight-page thing that we did as a sample in their talent showcase. And we just kind of hung out there all the time. You know, we would just go there, and we'd talk to the guys, and we'd hang, and we'd talk about comics and Japanese movies and stuff. And they, over time, they got the license to the Robotech stuff. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, they had assigned a book called As for me and, and Rich to do. I remember Robotech at the time and well, associated well, with that, the, but not... As was, was actually literally my first official book, but it never got published. Thank goodness. <laughs> if you had seen the artwork... Actually, I, I, I posted something recently, which was an ad we did uh, that was for that book. And you, it's on Facebook. You'll have to check it out. <clears throat> I had penciled three 30-page books, 90 pages of artwork, and Rich started inking them, and then they canceled the idea for the book. And they had gotten the Robotech thing and said, Neil, would you like to try uh, drawing this? We had three titles. Which one would you like to do? And I didn't know any of them. I didn't, I'd never heard of any of this stuff. Sure. Robo who? Yeah. Exactly. Well, it was, of course, it wasn't called originally Robotech. Because oh. <coughs> each was a, each book was based on a separate animated series. Mm -hmm. And Carl Masek had combined them under this title of Robotech. And I looked at the artwork that they had uh, brought over, and I picked the, the one that became Robotech Masters. They said, well, you, could, you guys can do this book if, first of all, you draw two issues of Robotech Macross, which was the kind of the lead-in series. Yeah, yeah. They, that series, then Masters, then uh, Next Generation. And um, they, they had fallen behind on Macross because the original artist couldn't do the next two issues. So we had to do two full issues of pencils and inks, 30 pages each, in like a month and a half. But that was that was great though, looking back on it, because sure. we were hungry. Yeah. We wanted to do this. Yeah. We're, we're drawing comic books. This right. is so cool, you know? Bring it on. And my main problem wasn't so much the amount of work involved, it was the fact that I was still learning how to draw like me. And here I had to learn to draw like a Japanese I, that, artist. I was gonna say, that was a really specific I style. I never anything remotely in that style before yeah. that day. Yeah. I had to learn how to do it. And ultimately, I didn't really draw all that closely to it, so. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I know from there you were self-publishing for a little while with Eagle, is that correct? Well, a few years... I might be messing up the timeline here, yeah. No, no, it's essentially that that's, that was literally the next thing. After doing Robotech for a couple of years, we were doing pretty good. Rich and I were, you know, we were making regular money and made the wives happy. And um, we, we stumbled on the idea, I think Rich had had a, the idea originally, he was supposed to be a, a Richard Eagle psychic detective. And um, I was, because of my movie interest, I was really into um, the Japanese and Chinese films. 
and samurai films and such, especially. So I want to do something with swords. So we kind of combined some of his idea with some of my ideas, and we threw in a little Doctor Strange, you know, a little uh, maybe a little Blade Runner, all these little things. And then ultimately, around that exact same time is when Highlander came out in the movie theaters, and I was just—I'm still a huge Highlander fan. And there, there it was. There was the whole situation. Modern day guys fighting right. with swords in the middle of a city. Right. I thought, this is what I want to do. And I just added the martial arts. I added all this other stuff. We, come, we just threw everything together in a blender. And, and we wanted to make it so uh, creatively open-ended in the sense that we didn't get stuck in a groove. Like we could go off this way and do a martial arts thing. We could go off this way and do a science fiction thing. We could do a horror thing. Because we left it that wide open and we stumbled into getting to know this fellow Jack Herman was the writer we could we just had no faith in our own writing ability so i i did plot the stories but we found jack jack was jack had actually dialogued the first issue over a weekend and proved himself right there that he could do a beautiful job and he over the years added stuff too so eagle we started to do because all the black and white stuff that was selling, everything was, it, ours wasn't all that special. Everything was selling that was black and white because yeah. all the retailers were buying up that stuff, thanks to the turtles. And um, we were luckier, I think, than a few of the others. We were selling like, I think we sold like 40,000 copies of the first issue, which is, I mean, they don't sell that many of Superman nowadays, yeah. you know? Yeah. remarkable. And um, so we did really well, but we did so well that Rich and I both agreed that we could move on from Robotech. So we, we went to Kamiko and gave him, you know, you're sorry, we started here, but we, we got to move on. We got our own book. Mm -hmm. Within a year, unfortunately, of course, all the black and white stuff started to die yeah, yeah. because it was such a glut. Sure. So yeah, Eagle was the very next thing. But I, I had established myself a little bit because of both Robotech and Eagle, where that got me, I got to know certain people in the industry, uh, editors, other writers and such, and artists. And that kind of gave me an in suddenly into the rest of, of the companies. Sure, right. So. The rest of the industry. So I, I'm skipping forward, but but uh, coming from a place where you had all that freedom in a way for with, with Eagle, like, you know what we should do, and let's do this, and yes. maybe some Highlander and Doctor Strange. Then skipping forward, I know that you worked on uh, Superman Adventures for a little while, and now here's a situation where we're like, oh, now we're really, I know, I'm really jumping forward time-wise. But of course, then that's a scenario where I'm guessing not to position it as like working under all these constraints, but certainly it's a little bit more focused and like, here is the hero now and we need to fit within certain parameters. Well, there's the thing in, in that time period between Eagle uh, and say nowadays, yeah. I did a lot of work for higher stuff, sure. which was a great training ground too. And thanks to Kamiko, I learned how to meet a deadline. Because you know you get forced, you, you can sit around and draw your fun pictures all day long on your own. Yeah. But when you actually have to do it for a job, you learn that you got to follow the schedule. They, yeah. you got to get them out every month. You got to meet those schedules. So all that work for hire stuff I did up until Superman was was a great training ground and fun because I got to do a lot of different projects as you're now familiar with since you read up on that stuff <laughs> that were fun. They weren't necessarily creatively uh, challenging, but they were they were satisfying because I was drawing a lot of stuff I really enjoy. Sure. I, like you were saying, Tarzan, a whole bunch of other the, the turtles, I, I, everywhere. I was doing all sorts of things, and Superman came along because I was going for the Batman book. I wanted to draw the Batman Adventures book because that was my first love. Was Batman and Doctor Strange were my two favorites, and 
they they had assigned I think it was I think they assigned somebody else or something had happened and I couldn't get the Batman books so I was like oh well at the time I had an agent for a few years from Star Reach Productions and the Superman thing came along okay we're already doing that would you want to do a Superman list sure what the heck it was work so I did it and and at first I didn't enjoy it because it wasn't Batman and then what I realized after doing a few issues is I was really enjoying the heck out of doing Superman because I, I think as far as I can remember back to when I first started reading comics, I think Superman was the first comic I ever, I ever, I ever read. So yeah. doing Superman Adventures was, was a joy. But at the same time, yeah, there's that, there is that constraint because I've always been somebody who pushes at the box a little. I try to get outside the box a little if I can. I'm not good at following the rules. I'm not the little robot, you know. I learned how to do that. Because you, you basically, you get assigned the job, you get the script, you follow the script, you do your pencils, you move on. Mm-hmm. And I mostly got away with doing that with no big problem. I think the first major um, confrontation, not confrontation I had, but um, rebelliousness, I guess. Sure. Well, you can't see those quotes I just did. Um, <laughs> A creative butting of heads, if you will. Air quotes. <laughs> um, an issue, a, a script had come in for Superman Adventures. Yeah. And it was about Superman losing his memory and ending up back in Smallville, but nobody knows who he is. But the thing is, the writer, and I honestly don't remember who the writer was, and that's probably a good thing, it's not that it was terrible, it was that it borrowed stuff that I was very familiar with because of movies and TV. It, 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 Superman loses his memory because he tries to stop a meteor that's about to hit the Earth. Well, that's Panic in the Sky from the old TV show. You know, I mean, I remember that. I was a kid when I saw that. He, he goes out there, he tries to stop the meteor, he loses his memory, <laughs> right? Well, this guy apparently thought that was a great idea or thought it was his idea, sure. I'm not sure. And Superman falls to Earth, but ironically falls to Earth just outside of Smallville, and his outfit has been messed up somehow, so people don't know who he is, and right. he, they think he's just some homeless bum. And then as the story goes along, at the end of the story, he, he regains his memory. Well, I told the editor that, first of all, that's Panic in the Sky from Superman. Why don't we, why don't we make it something else? And he says, well, what? Do you have a suggestion? And on the phone, I, I, I just riffed the idea that, okay, the toy man, is, uh, he's, he's left this giant uh, doll outside the Daily Planet because he gets on the, the television. He says, I'm going to destroy the planet. Well, then they realize, oh, he's going to destroy the Daily Planet. So there's this giant rag doll sitting outside that's going to blow up the Daily Planet. And Superman flies out, he grabs it, and he flies up into space, and then as he flies through the atmosphere, the, the doll falls apart. It comes down to a little jack-in-the-box with a little toy man, and it comes out and it goes, boom, and then the thing explodes. And he loses his memory, and he falls a small. So I said, well, let's try that. What do you think? And, they, and, and the editor went along with it, which was great. I was, very, I was so excited that I was actually able to initiate some idea <laughs> in the script. And then the rest of it, the, the, the guy who wrote, again, who wrote the story, the Superman gets his memory back, and then flies away and the story's over. And I said to the editor, what about the meteor? He didn't stop the meteor. It's going to hit Earth. It destroyed Metropolis. It's done. And (laughs) which is the other reason I said, let's drop the meteor thing. This way there's no impending destruction of Earth waiting for Superman to regain his memory. So anyway, so that, and I, I tied in the doll I tied in the doll to the story, too. I said, well, how he gets his memory back is because this little kid gets in a car accident and he has the little rag doll that the toy man used for his giant rag doll. And that 
jumpstarts his memory again. Sure. And then when he flies off at the end after regaining his memory, we don't have to worry that the Earth is going to be destroyed in the next couple of panels because, you know, there's no meteor that's going to hit. Anyway, but that that made that was a lot of fun I got involved in the story yes but also because of Eagle years before and things like that I've kind of spoiled me I said I want to make my own stories or at least be part of the storytelling process right well I think and that's probably a natural segue then bringing us back around to what what you're associated with now and probably most known for right now and we're talking about flesh and blood where you've really got to pun not necessarily intended sink your teeth into something that's that's near and dear I'm sorry I'm sorry everyone I'm not proud of it it happened many times I've said the same thing Um, where you've got a lot more control um, with with your well, writing partner, I started with uh, Parliament of Justice, yes. which I did with Mike Oming. I had just, uh, uh, th- I think they had just canceled Superman Adventures at the time, so I was kind of in between things. And Mike Oming, who I had known for a long time since he was like 15 years old, before he got into business, um, he brought me this idea for Parliament of Justice, and he said, "I'd love to have you draw this." Mm-hmm. And I read through it and I said, "Oh, I don't think I want to draw this because, as I had just been spending, I just spent a couple of years doing Superman Adventures, which was very lighthearted." And this thing was really dark. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't start that way, but it gets really dark. And there's there's one really violent scene in it. And I thought, I don't know if that's me, you know? But he kept at me because we we were friends. And he, and he said, come on, you got to do it. And eventually I gave in and I worked on it with him and, and, and we I did the story. And the ironic thing was that after doing it, I was getting all these responses from people that had to do with what I did in the storytelling and the style I did it, which was an ink wash style, yeah. which had nothing to do with other people's characters, other people's companies. It had to do with just what I had accomplished in the drawing mm-hmm. and the storytelling. And I, I had people come up to me, uh, artists I've known for years, like Mark Wheatley says, you found your voice. I mean, this is 20 years into my career. You found your voice. And it just it, it opened up my whole heart and mind to, to this thing. And I said, I finally gotten to that point I you know you as an artist or any creative person you want to get to that point where you've found yourself mm-hmm. who you are your voice and apparently I found it because Mike pushed me into doing this book and since then that's all I've been doing is, is creator own stuff yeah yeah well and it, and it makes a difference in finding that voice I, I think it's funny of course that that you mentioned at first Parliament of Justice is like I don't know because it gets a little violent now no. <laughs> Going in the crystal ball, what was coming? So let's talk about flesh and blood, because it is, of course, at times just unap- unapologetic, like salaciousness. Which I mean in a good way, even sometimes yeah. that yeah. like you guys go there and you don't look back. Like we want to try this, we're gonna do it. And uh, well, I well that first I, six or seven pages. I mean, we jump right into. It. I mean, you're gonna know what kind of book it is right there. Yeah, yeah. You know, we start with vampire lovers, and there's there's you know TNA and <laughs> and there's fangs and blood and the heads being lopped off yeah. and we the thing is that but Bob Tunnell who of course wrote it uh, who created it with me he said look we're going to give them what they want in the first part of the book then we'll do what we want to do in the story and that's essentially what he did he threw all the stuff at you that's going to make you want to buy the book and then oh there's a story too yeah. you know because yeah. Bob is just that kind of writer right well and I think that makes a lot of sense and I've seen uh I think right out of other interviews, maybe with the both of you before, where you talk about the importance of character, especially in something like horror. You've actually done your research. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, but the idea, and, and I appreciate this, and I like this, and I agree with this as well, which is that if you don't spend some time investing something in these characters, who cares when they get well, yeah. killed or whatever, because you never cared in the first place. Well, yeah, that's why I was never a fan of the slasher films. Yeah. 
you know, they, they've got their merits here and there, but the idea of just putting a bunch of uh, soulless characters into a story and just uh, imaginatively killing them off, yeah. that's kind Who of cares? boring. I mean, yeah, once or twice that might work, but, you know, for ten films in a row yeah. or an entire genre, right. no, it's just... I don't see the point. I mean, the stuff I grew up on, the, the Universals, the Hammers, things like that, they were actually moral tales. They were like fairy tales in a way. You know, the, the, there was evil, there was good, and nine times out of ten, the good won. So you're learning a lesson, too. And it was great seeing Dracula coming back to life every film, and you, you know, even though there was no keeping him down. But at the same time, he always lost He's at the end. The good yeah. guy always won at the end. Yeah. And the, the Westerns I watched as a kid on TV, you know, it was the white hat era. You know, yep. the, the the good guy. You knew the good guys. You know, and and you knew the bad guys. Mm -hmm. But of course, as time changed, you know, it, once you hit the '60s and everything, the gray areas started showing up. Yeah. And and basically, in in Flesh and Blood, we well certainly there is a continuing character who isn't necessarily a good guy. I mean, Baron Frankenstein is not a good guy. Mm -hmm. But there's still that you know. The, the battle of good and evil was going on there. Right. And we, we try to keep that going. And like, again, Bob is such a fantastic writer. He comes up with a whole so, sorts of things that I would never even have heard. Me, I just want to do the vampires fighting monsters and stuff. Yeah. And he says, no, let's let's give it a little more character than that. Oh, okay, all right. I'll well, I, I've got to say one of, one of my favorite, I think this is maybe from the second volume, one of the examples that I really love uh, uh, along those lines, because it is both incredibly violent but very quiet at the same time. It's a sequence where one uh, vampire woman, she rips off the head of another and, like, drops it from afar. And then we cut to, like, Frankenstein is working in an office or something, and the head just falls silently yeah. outside. He doesn't even know to, like, it has a moment of, like, huh, what? What's, what was that? And I think the framing of that is fantastic. Uh, endlessly cracks me up, and there's a lot of ways that it could have been... I don't some know. Of, played some of that stuff comes from me. Some of that stuff comes from Bob. Bob, Bob is a, a great collaborator. Like several of the fellows I've worked with, like Kurt Busiek and guys like that, who aren't um, married to their work. Yeah. They'll they'll give you the script. They'll give you the idea they want, and they, they, they'll essentially say, "Look, this is where I want it to start. This is where I want it to end." But if you want to futz around in the middle there somewhere, you know, go for it. That's why they want to work with me. That's why I want to work with them. Right. Because we we do it together and Bob is like that he'll he'll say look we got to do this but he expect he'll, he'll actually write essentially they were like um, what 80 page stories he'll write basically a 40 page plot because he knows I'm gonna expand or or make it smaller whatever I'm gonna if, if it he won't like if, if there's a fight scene he'll say fight scene and <laughs> he'll just leave it up to me yeah and like that one he had the whole thing where she rips the head off sure but I added the little comedic, oh. black comedy kind of thing with the head going by and him like, what? What was that? You know? Yeah. And it's just, that's the kind of thing Hammer did too. Hammer always had that comedy relief element into it and things. Yeah. I think you need that. I agree. Well, that's why I say when I was talking about Parliament, for me, the scene that, that, that's in Parliament that I, we were talking about is so extreme and, and gut-wrenching, literally, <laughs> um, especially because of the characters that you've met to this point. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't expect something like this. That works great in that story, but you can't throw that at, I don't think you should throw that at a reader every five or 10 pages, because then it's, you, you get dead Yeah, to you're it, you desensitized to it. And that's what a lot of those films are like, where it's just after a while, it's just, okay, you know. Right. You, you don't, you're desensitized. Yeah. And I think uh, violence, uh, like any uh, emotional thing in a story, works 
when it's in the context within the context of the story, it's not thrown in your face through the whole thing, like the like like special effects in a movie. Sure, special effects in a movie are wonderful if they help the story, not if they're there instead of a story. And I think that's the main that's the main difference. So, with with uh, Flesh and Blood, it's the kind of the same thing. It it does it does have a lot of violent moments in it, but it's not thrown in your face, you know, all the time. There's actually a lot more story than there is violence, or yeah. even even the I, TNA stuff mm -hmm. isn't really, again, all in your face, mm -hmm. you know, as much as we would like that to be. <laughs> uh, hello, what? Um, well, I want to give people an opportunity if they want to find you and either tell you alternately uh, how much they love it and or, or if they're, <laughs> well, or if it's keeping them up or nights or if whatever 10-year-old out there, well, 10-year-olds, this is not the book for you. 10-year-olds, look for something else, please. Superman Adventures is available in trade paperback. Um, nonetheless, where I'm going with this is how can people reach out to you to uh, let you know what they're liking? Uh, well, on Facebook, I'm easy enough to find and uh, just put my name and Google, and you'll track down all these, which you probably did. You probably found a lot I, of these. I saw a few. I know all about your Huffman Coos employment record, man. It's, uh, it's all there on the internet. Probably more about it than I than I know, or actually <laughs> or even want to remember. Well, I really appreciate it. This is fantastic, and I uh, hope you have a good show. I well, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Celebrate the 30th anniversary of Neil's black-and-white comic, Death's Dark Angel, which was just republished in a fully remastered edition by American Mythology Productions. That will be followed up by Dark Tales from the Volksverse. And after listening to this interview, I think you'll agree that he's going to be able to deliver on that title. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. So, how did we do? What do you think? Leave me a message at the social media channels and you might even hear your name on the podcast. You'll be famous in the ears of tens of listeners. Thanks to all of you that have been listening from episode to episode and have shared your thoughts and support. And super special thanks to sound magician, composer, and my co-producer, David Sisko. You are and remain the finest arranger and massager of sound waves in New York City. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this free travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. Let people know that you're listening. You can like the 1.21 Geekawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Geekawatts, and come check out some pictures of my own geeky treasure trove at 1.21 underscore Geekawatts on Instagram. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2Awesome with our radtastic theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. 1.21 gigawatts, what every geek wants is what we got. From Doctor Who to Aqualad, we might think Luke and Leia's dead. Pop culture that is super rad, hosted by some guy named Brad. It'll rock you to your cyber Nylon socks. 1.21 freaking gigawatts. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenberg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. <laughs> <laughs>